This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to Critics at Large, a podcast from The New Yorker. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Naomi Fry. And I'm Vincent Cunningham. Hello, everyone. Greetings. Hey. Good morning. <laughs> we, Good afternoon. Good noon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right at noon, we are staff writers at The New Yorker. And each week, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. So, guys, I just have to ask you, have you tried to get a restaurant reservation lately? Please tell me about it. I have tried, and I don't know if this is going to ruin our conversation, but I've succeeded. Oh. Have I'm, you su- in fact, going to dinner this very evening with a restaurant reservation. How is, it, is it a hot, hot restaurant? Well, I should say, first of all, it's a Monday. Let's just keep that in mind. It's yes. a Monday. And the, and the reservation is for 4.15. <laughs> all tricks of the trade. It is a restaurant that I, I was a bit of a hard ticket and I think has become easier over the years. No, me. Um, you know— very occasionally, I make a reservation. I should note that I always try to have someone else make the reservation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of stress, you mean? Yeah. It, it's just there's something about it. It's like I never bid on eBay because there's something about I'm not built for the stress of like, oh, I'm trying to make a reservation and suddenly it's disappeared. You know, it's like something is, seems to be available and then suddenly it's gone or like wait list. Will they notify me like down to the wire you know so i i like a a, a cowardly lazy person i usually have others uh make the reservation you guys make me feel like a restaurant hype beast like i'm always trying to get into places no i feel like you're really like on it right recently i ate at bangkok supper club which is the new restaurant by the people who brought us Fish Cheeks, a wonderful Southern Thai restaurant. Mm. And I had to eat there at 10 p.m. with wow. my friends in order for us to uh, to get there. Um, it was delicious. It was wonderful. We could talk about the Masaman curry another time. But <laughs> it was really hard to do. And it, this is kind of exactly what I want to talk about today. Okay. Um, it just seems like, and I don't know if this is your impression, some point between the pandemic and now, the, like, the experience of going to restaurants become this total frenzy. Subject to market forces that I can't even wrap my head around. Uh, Online reservations at buzzy restaurants, they get snapped up seconds after they get released. Uh, The tables are being swapped like trading cards (laughs) on all kinds of black markets and on the dark web. Credit cards are offering exclusive access to concierge services just to help you get into these places. We're at peak TikTok restaurant. Something is going on right now in the way we think about dining out. And so my question is, what is it? Why does a good meal at a popular place feel like, on the one hand, such a badge of honor, on the other hand, such a scarce resource? And what does this moment in the restaurant industry tell us about the art, ideas, and bourgeois culture of today? Mm -hmm. All good questions. All good questions. All good questions. This week on Critics at Large, the scene restaurant and why we dine out. Wow. Or don't. Or don't. Or don't. 
So the other day, and by the other day, I guess I, guess I mean a couple of weeks ago, I went to the famous scene restaurant, Tatiana, that's at Lincoln Center. Wow. Um, one of my friends, a an amazing food writer, um, brought me to this restaurant, just included me in this party. It's Did the he first... have juice? He had juice. She has so oh, much she. juice. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Okay. The, 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 yeah. the surgeon was <laughs> yeah. a woman. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, she had a Sorry. lot. Of, she she had a lot of juice, so much juice that I met Chef Kwame. Oh wow! He came over. He sent a bunch of stuff to us. It's the first time since I was a kid that I ate so much that I kind of wanted to throw up. I felt very gluttonous. But like, have you guys just been hearing from people about their adventures in restaurant going, either success stories like mine or otherwise? I feel like yeah. I mean, anecdotally, I will say that the way people have been talking about restaurants and about reservations. Yeah, kind of like the scene of it rather than, you know, talking about the food necessarily, right? Um, The usage of uh, certain types of lingo, for instance, when people say foretop in like regular conversation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or like people saying like, oh, that's a tough table. And these are not food people, you know, these are just people like us, you know? Yeah. The inside culture has become the yeah. culture. Yes, yes, yes. The sort of insidery, yeah, conversation lingo is now much more widespread. One thing that's changed for me, um, I take a bit of a longer view, mm-hmm. which which has to do with, and I know we're, we're you know, going to talk more about this, but the way reservations are made from, let's say, the antediluvian times where you <laughs> called someone up on a telephone, probably yeah. one that was actually connected to physically a jack in your home, um, and and spoke to someone and put in a request verbally to have a table committed to your, what is this horse and your name. buggy? I know. I'm trying to tell you stuff. guys what it was like back in the day. <laughs> uh-huh. It really was like that, if you can even imagine, to the current kind of like quickest trigger finger on the mouse or on scrolling on your phone, who can click the fastest. And one difference this has made, this reservation change has made in my life, is the phenomenon of eating when you can get the reservation. So, uh-huh. you know, many restaurants booking 30 days out, but no more. Oh, this random Wednesday at 9.45, a reservation is available. All right. I guess I will simply gear my whole week and indeed my whole (laughs) month to the fact that that is the time I can eat at this certain place. Mm. And I actually have put my foot down recently and said no more. No more of this. Um, Yeah, that sort of sense of it is not I who is choosing when to dine. It is being chosen for me. Should I choose to accept the mission? Right. Hold on one second, though. Yes. Because – we have amazing resources in the building that we work in. Let's bo- use them. Bo- we should use them. I thought we could invite a friend of ours to talk with us. Hannah Goldfield is a fellow staff writer at The New Yorker covering restaurants and food culture. She's one of the magazine's food critics. I think she's in the office today, I heard. And maybe she could just help us parse some of this stuff. You guys are both pretty good friends of hers. Um, this is going to be my very first. Very good friends so of we're hers. Go- so we're going to choose the phone a friend option. We're going to phone a friend. We're going to phone Can a friend. Can one of you guys text Hannah right now? Yes. 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 Yeah, yeah. Let's text Hannah. Uh... Hannah, come over to the studio. Three exclamation marks. How the New Yorker works is that you text people and then they show okay. up where you are. You phone a friend. Yeah. Ba 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 ba. Ba 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 ba. There she Summoned. is. Summoned. Summoned and arrived. This is so scary. Scary. Hi. Why? Oh, hi. 
I don't know. You just all look so professional. Yeah, we have gear. Well, we just have Serious. the things on it's our. Like we've the moment we, met. we've never it's met, nice. and oh, I love wow. your work. And oh, I, what thank a moment! You. I love your work. How's it going? I'm fine. We're just kind of talking about the way that reservation culture, specifically, has kind of exploded. Is that something that you, as a professional, are noticing? What What are we missing here? Yes, I am noticing it. Hugely. I feel like the whole landscape has totally changed. Um, and I have theories and then I have some insider information. We love that. If there if there were a, a subtitle for this podcast, it would be theories and insider information. So please. Like, and usually just, we're strong on the former and, more theory and very weak on the latter. <laughs> so. Yeah. But you're bringing the juice today. Oh, yeah. I've got some hard evidence. So what's the theory? Let's start with the theory. So, Wait, but before the theory. Yes. I'm sorry. I just want to say, you said that this is something that you've been noticing hugely. Yes. Would you place that as a post-pandemic phenomenon? Is it earlier? Yes. So that's one of my theories. Oh, is I that, see. Yes. Okay. Well, it, it's um, all connected. It's definitely at least seemed to be a lot harder to make a restaurant reservation post-pandemic than it was Mm pre-pandemic. So I do think that part of this is because people are still kind of like crazed for restaurants. Right. Um, And then I think that my other theory, and this is other people have said this to me as well, uh, is TikTok. Okay. Like, there's just so much content. And I've been really amazed to see that the boost that a restaurant seems to get from TikTok is much, seems to be much higher than the boost a restaurant gets from traditional coverage in the press. Like, if the Times gives a restaurant a really great review, it'll be harder to get a table. You'll see lines. But I've just been, you know, on occasion walking around lower Manhattan and suddenly I see a really long line outside of a restaurant and I'm, like, what is that? And it's almost whenever I ask it, it someone will just be like, oh, TikTok. Um, and, you know, there are these people who seem to be making careers out of going to restaurants, filming footage, and then it creates like a frenzy of people. Is it com- like going one of those things where there's like a, 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 a snappy tune in the background? Or? Yeah, there's usually music. There's it's all of there are all of the sort of markers of TikTok. There's text. There's jump cuts, and it's very dynamic, and it's hard to look away. And then it's these really like sensual shots of, you know, like there's the 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 first thing that comes to mind is the cheese pull and that's become like what is that? It's, you know, cheese being pulled. Like like gooey gooey melted cheese being pulled in such a way that I think kind of triggers like ASMR, which I know Alex uh, has written about in the past. So, but cheese pulling, you know, I've been to a great number of restaurants. <laughs> Never seen a cheese pull. And isn't this part of the sort of, doesn't this create another dynamic where now restaurants make dishes yes. that have these like, that occasion these kind of money shots that yes, people can then exactly. like. exactly. And it's a whole other like layer of what used to happen on Instagram where it would, you know, things were sort of just made to look interesting or beautiful or colorful or, or whatever. And now you need this 3D right, the movement aspect. You need the... some kind of like those, you know, wiggly cakes or like jello based things and cheese pulls and everything has to If it to doesn't have wiggle like a... and it doesn't pull, it doesn't <laughs> What's fly. It for? Yeah. Yeah. Are there yeah. Are there like specific accounts that you 
attend to? The one that I attend to is the one that I think has gotten, I don't know if it's gotten the most attention. It's gotten the most attention in the things that people that I follow and things that I read, which is um, the VIP list. So tell us about Ladies, it a little bit. It's these two women and they go to restaurants and talk about them and they have this really like brash. They're young. They're, they're young. Yeah, yeah. They're, like in they're, their 20s. they're in their early 20s, yeah. I think, early to mid 20s. And they use kind of slightly dirty language. <laughs> Everything's very sexualized, right, I would right, say. Right. Um, right. And can we swear on this podcast? Yes. yes. They'll they'll be like, this, I, <laughs> like the rigatoni fucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, I'm so into this that I'm, I think They're I'm brassy gonna, blondes. They're brassy blondes. Yes. I think we're going to try to open one up and like just listen to it all That's together so we idea. can like okay. all react oh, to it. Good, good idea, good idea. Uh, so what's the, the VIP list? The VIP list. So what you need is one of their like nightlife Let's do ones LA restaurants worth the hype? Yes, this is what you want. City trend. Some of y'all are out here catfishing Some of y'all. Well. We decided to save you some time and let you know which LA Jeez, spots are actually worth the hype. Oh, I want to know. First we have Il Pastaya, 100% worth it. <laughs> Some of the best pasta we've ever had. And where else are you going to get white truffle showers? Next, we have In-N-Out. You will rarely catch me raving about fast food. But the animal-style cheeseburger and fries from here is a mandatory order every time I'm on the West Coast. Elefante fucks. This eggplant is life-changing. And let's just say they know their way around a spicy vodka pasta. Next, we have anything from H. Okay, so now I know what a cheese pull is. (laughs) There were so many cheese pulls in that. I have one question though for you because I do like to take the longer view and there and there was a moment pre-TikTok when I did notice that Resi entered the scene it became a whole thing and then there developed this Resi culture where a certain restaurant I'm thinking of the restaurant Lilia in Williamsburg Mm -hmm. the Italian restaurant I started hearing about this restaurant did I think I was the only one certainly not but I thought I had it I thought I had a fighting chance (laughs) then I realized (laughs) that every single date is blacked out And then I realize, aha, the tables are getting released at a certain hour. Mm -hmm. And then I further realize (laughs) that hour is midnight. Right. Now it seems like every single restaurant is like this. Yeah, sometimes you certainly can get a reservation more easily. But tell us a little bit about Resi Cult. So I was going to say, so I feel like this conversation could be broken down into part A, which we've already discussed, and then part B, which is Resi. Like, Resi, I think, has totally transformed the landscape, too, in in so many ways. And this is where my hard evidence comes in, because I now know a little bit more about how Resi works on the back end, on the restaurant end, what they can and cannot do. Will you have some tips for I, our listeners? Well, <laughs> it's, let me just say, it's a, it's, the game is fixed. You know, it's like, well. depending on the restaurant. But yes, I, yes, there are tips, but also like there's a lot that we just can't, you just can't control. Okay. So yeah, so Resi has to- seems to have totally taken over as the platform for reservations. We should talk about what Resi is, I guess. It's a software that that allows restaurants to take reservations, but it also helps them like figure out where to seat people and shows them how tables are expected to turn over. I think f- there's two things going on. I think one, if you're not on Resi, you're kind of missing a chance to be discovered because Resi is like a nice one-stop shop. You go and it shows you a map or a list and it's a way you know, you're, you're like, oh, I, I want to go out to dinner on Friday night with 
three people. Let's see what's available on Resi. It's so it's just not an just easier... a place to get where, where you want. It's also a system of yes, discovery. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. You can see what's available. So I think um, it's like the I think, explore page. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. you want to be on there for exposure. Um, I think it's hard to get people to book tables at your restaurant um, mm-hmm. if you're not on Resi. Right. But so, when you said before yes. that the game is rigged, right? Yes. Right. It's fixed. How yeah. is going on? So okay. So what my friend told me, and this is a person who owns several, co-owns several restaurants, which are um, pretty upscale, is when those reservations are being released at, say, midnight, or some restaurants do it at 10 a.m., and it's two weeks out or four weeks out. What this person told me is that they tend to, at least at, at this person's restaurant, they release reservations in what they described as the shoulders so they're only releasing the rest, the reservations at 5.45 and 9 p.m. because those are the hardest tables to sell. So you think – so when they say that tables are being released, oh it's not – you're not – the 7 p.m. Oh or 8 boy. p.m. reservations are not being released. They're holding on to those. Sometimes they give them to VIPs, people that they know. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes this person told me they save them for walk-ins because – Walk-ins tend to uh, turn tables faster. Like the kind of person who is willing to just show up and wait for a table, they're so excited to go to the restaurant that they're more likely to kind of be in and out, I guess. Like, that makes sense. If I made yeah. a reservation and I waited right. a month to go, you're I'm like, not going to... You're parking your butt right. in that chair. I'm going to look... It's right. my living room Right, now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I live I, Yeah, there's a sense of entitlement, right. <laughs> I think. It's yeah. like, I I work. This. That makes total yeah. sense I work. To yeah. yeah. So so that's nice, too, because that means you can, you can serve more people in an evening. Um, I was also told that you know, so on Resi, if you can't get a table, you can you can put a what's called a notification. I guess you hit notify, and and then you'll get if you're lucky a notification telling you that it's become available. Right. Um, Let me tell you, I think the notifications are a nightmare. They're a nightmare. But the restaurants, it's there's also a feature on Resi that allows you to instantly Google someone. So <gasps> you, they're all they're all looking us up. And this if, is fascinating. If they think you're someone cool, they might bump you to, you well, know, what's so to number in, one. What's so interesting to me about this is, in some sense, restaurants have always worked this way. Of course, you had to know the maitre yeah. d'. You had yeah. to, you, if you were somebody, absolutely right. there would be a way to get you in. Um, and I do think something like Resi has given us the impression that it's more democratic. Right. I have essentially thought that all the other people trying to get the reservation at the same time have snapped up the 7.30 tables, leaving me alone with the 5.45 or 9 p.m. option. I'm still – I'm scandalized. By this. Now I'm finding am, out that that's not the case. was never even available. The shoulders were released yeah. first. So I have this strange sense, the shoulders. I'm, I'm – now that I know that I'm a shoulder, um, yeah, how do, how, do I, how do I deal with that? I mean, I think it's the the – emotional journey of having gone from knowing that the game is rigged to believing the game to be somewhat less rigged to realizing it's more rigged than ever before. It's more rigged than ever before because, like, part of the the rigging before is you, like, you could be a person without any connections and you could call the restaurant and plead your case, you know. And and before I wrote about restaurants, I may have done that from time to time. Oh, this, like, you call and you say, is there anything you can do? This is a really special, you know— evening and someone's birthday and mm-hmm. sometimes you would get someone who would say okay you know we'll move things around see what can be done and now a lot of restaurants do not have phone Faceless. numbers they don't have phones right. so I, maybe as a final question for you yeah i guess i just wonder what 
is what are diners looking for in a restaurant? And does it have anything to do with this issue of scarcity and hype? That we're talking about. And how much does it have to do with food? And cheese <laughs> cheese polls. And cheese polls. I mean, I also think if 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 I if I may um if I may just interject, I think that people want scarcity. I think scarcity yes. like I had seen yes. did you see the story recently about a group of I don't know if they're students, they're definitely in their early twenties, who created for one night only a steak restaurant, but they had yes. they had hyped it up yes. to the extent they had they had built up a reputation for this non-existent restaurant so that people who got reservations there felt so lucky yes. to get to eat at the best steak restaurant in New York. There were fake reviews on Yelp. There was everything. And then it was some guy in his early 20s with no professional <laughs> cooking experience slinging some steaks. It was really like a brilliant performance yeah. art piece, yeah, I think. Totally. And I think a lot of people went yeah, along with this no, emperor yeah. has no clothes people, situation. People want things that they feel like they can't have. And then people love to get these really hard to get reservations and then be like, oh, the food wasn't even that good. <laughs> you know, like, I feel like that's part of it, too. Like, they really want to go and be like, it was so overhyped. But but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's I think it's scarcity. Scarcity is scarcity is sexy. <laughs> I think I don't think there's a better way we're going to end this, um, this interview. Scarcity is sexy. Hannah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for Yay, having Hannah. me. Thank you. <laughs> In a minute, we'll talk about a restaurant that offers a completely different picture of why we dine out. It's called Le, Le Trois Gros. Yes. Alex, how do you say That's French? It. How do you, how That's do you speak it. French? Yeah, I'm so... Trois Gros. I'm so... Trois Gros. Like, if you, if you can get a little bit of the... in the throat, trois. but it's very hard. Oh, my God. It's trois Gros. Like, yeah. I would say Trois Gros. Trois Gros. <laughs> it's like, you're not getting it? Please say it like that. Trois Gros. Trois Gros. Trois Gros. Yeah. Le Trois Gros. Wow. Hello there, radio listeners. It's Luke Burbank, host of LiveWire. Each week, we bring you riveting and unexpected conversations with the people behind some of the most interesting entertainment and culture out there today. Plus, we're going to introduce you to great music and outrageously funny comedy. And you get to hang with me and our announcer, Elena Passarello, as we talk about the best news of the week. So please, don't miss LiveWire. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, everyone. Before we dive back into the conversation, we wanted to take a quick moment to point you to last week's episode because it's a really good one, if we do say so ourselves. We talk about Britney Spears' new memoir, The Woman in Me, and how the book reframes music that was so formative to me and I'm sure to many others during my tween years. It's us going like slightly trashy mode, but smart. About one of the most important people in our culture. Mm -hmm. True. That episode is being featured on Spotify right now, so head on over there and give it a listen. Now, 
Now we should talk about a film that, by the way, we all saw together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a tr- group uh, trip. It was a class trip. Yeah, another scarce resource, togetherness. Um, it's called <laughs> Menu Plaisir, Le Trois Gros. Oof. It by- just rolls off your tongue. <laughs> it's like butter. Like uh, butter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the 93-year-old director, Frederick Wiseman. It's an incredibly well-made film um, about an incredibly well-run restaurant. Yes. Yes. And I, I think it might serve as an extreme example of why people like us, right, who like art, like uh, literature, like four-hour documentaries, <laughs> uh, find what we find so irresistible about restaurants. Um, could somebody describe this film for me and say the name of it again? Go ahead, Alex. It would be my greatest pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, the, the film is called Menu Plaisir, Les Trois Gros, mm-hmm. and it is about a Michelin three-star restaurant owned and operated by the same family for four generations. So currently, the owner who is depicted in the film, Michel, is in the process of handing the reins over to his son, César, who's mm-hmm. in the kitchen. That's They're in right. central France. They're in the Loire region in a town called Ouch, which is just – which is great to that's say. That's a good – I can say that one. Ouch. Um, and the film, in classic Wiseman fashion, does not feature any talking heads. There is no explanation or explication aside from what you get in the action of the film, which is cooking, going to market, preparing new dishes. We go and see how cheese is made at the local cheesemaker or um, Michel Vitoigros, because it's the family name, visits the um, a local farm where cattle is being raised and discusses the um, the the raising of the cattle, how it has to, everything to do with the cultivation of the land, the and the you know the cycles of the year. Same for wine. Everything is really dependent on this sense of stewardship of mm-hmm. the place, and the cuisine is part of that. So that at least is what I got from the movie. And it's we should just say also it's just it's a ton of time in the kitchen. Madame, messieurs, j'ai six couverts qui passent avec quatre grands menus et deux menus enfants. On a une personne qui est sans fruits de mer et sans crustacés. On fera trois coques, un remplacement chou-fleur derrière six asperges. Which is probably the most, for me, the most pleasurable aspect, being able to follow the knife, uh, (laughs) the movement of the knife as it cuts into, uh, you know, um, a brain. A brain. A beautiful scene. He like is talking to uh, this younger chef, and he's like, he's messed the brain thing up, and he yeah. like brings him this big reference book, and he's like, you know, if you'd read this, you'd know. Look at this. It was this like go to Larousse. You always have to go to Larousse, or you have to go to Escoffier, Escoffier. The, the absolute yeah. classic bibles of French cooking. Yeah. yeah, and he's like, check this out, and then you see, you see this like these moments of mentorship and study, and in some ways, it's a an inverse of what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the sort of outer shell of like how it is to get into a restaurant, which here we don't see until later. We don't see the customers until a little bit, maybe two hours into this film. Definitely. And we should also note the fact that this is a very, very expensive restaurant, of course, which makes sense, you know, considering the work we see that goes into creating these dishes that the people eat. And, you know, it's interesting to think about, and I was wondering what you guys what your perspective on this was, because Weissman has been known in a lot of ways for um, 
documenting institutions that are civic and often um, uh, involve the working class and and all and 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 makes the working class seen in in a lot That's of right, ways. Yeah. Um, and uh, and this seems like quite a different thing. It's about work, but it's about work that ultimately serves, you know, incredibly wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I was just wondering what your thinking about that was. I, one thing that I, you know, it, it's so funny. The one thing that I question in my response to Menu Plaisir is how honestly annoyed I was when the people started showing up. Mm, the diners. The diners. Yeah. It, it's just oh, like, yeah, talk about there that. There is like a, just as there is an ecosystem that sort of occurs between, I don't know, the outdoors and the ecology and the inside of a restaurant, there is just an, an ecology between the work of an artist and the sort of uh, potential annoyance of the people who come to consume it the people come you know there's a there's especially just one guy that i can't stop thinking about who was just like sniffing the wine oh, yeah. in this very was, interesting way but i, I like, feel like with that with that particular one there's something you know wiseman's <laughs> eye is is a uh, quote-unquote objective but of course it, it an eye can can never be objective and i think with that guy the diner with the camera kind of like resting on him as he made a kind of big show of sniffing the wine and said, you know, <laughs> smacking his lips and, you know, all of that is sort of extended, an extended moment of And all sniffing of the that. food. He leaned his nose very close to the food so that yes. it was basically you know, almost touching, took a big whiff and then removed himself and, and I went think again. I, I think he I has whispered a strategy. to you when we were at Film Forum at the 9.30 a.m. screening of this four-hour movie. I whispered to you, yeah. he... Um, was like Remy the rat from Ratatouille, uh, who, which is by the way one of my favorite movies. Yeah. If you haven't, no, it really is. I watch it. I believe it, you. I rewatch it on a plane just recently um, over the summer. Uh-huh. I, I've seen it several times. Um, it, you know, just a, just a quick pricey for those of us not familiar with the movie. Uh, it's about a rat in Paris <laughs> mm-hmm. who loves fine dining and fine cooking and Needless gourmet to say, it's cooking. An, it's an animated film. It's an animated, yeah, it's a Pixar movie, sorry. <laughs> it's a documentary. It's about a documentary. It. Yeah. Uh, and he, he, you know, through a series of tumultuous turns, twists and turns, ends up being at a fine dining restaurant in Paris in the kitchen and helps a bumbling kind of intern type in the kitchen become a great chef. Am I still fired? You can fire him. What? Leclerc likes it, yeah? She made a point of telling you so. If she write a review to that effect and find out you fired the cook responsible... <laughs> He's a garbage boy. ...who made something she liked. How can we claim to represent the name of Gusto if we don't uphold his most cherished belief? And what belief is that, Mademoiselle Tattoo? Anyone can cook. But just to say that that movie, it's basically about that conundrum of, like, who is fine dining for, Right. Is it for the rats, quote unquote? You know, is it can a rat who's like a nothing, you know, less than nothing, a disgusting vermin, et cetera, et cetera, um, enjoy fine dining and, you know, both eating it and cooking it? And is it for him as well? Is it for everyone, quote unquote? Or is it just for the very few 
both in terms of cooking and, and, and dining, you know, which which I do think is a tension in the Weisman movie. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, I, didn't, to, I didn't realize that, that Ratatouille was a great political text. To so come, to to come, to come full again. circle, you know, I, I mean, just anyway. Well, what tangent. I want to know is I had the same feeling as you, Vincent. What do you think that annoyance about the diners was? Well, it, I think what it was, it was a kind of, I think for me, a, a sort of sublimated self-censure. Because um, the big question for me always is like, you know, you go to the museum, you go to the theater, you go to, you know, the, 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 there's a part of me that wants to say, you know, I go to restaurants for the same reason I do those other things, which is I want to be abreast of what the most creative people in our world are doing. Be I part of the conversation. Be a part of, mm-hmm. be a part of the conversation, be inspired, be um be make myself open to the great like artistic developments mm-hmm. of my time and I want to mm-hmm. make sure I don't miss them on some level. But when I go to those places, I notice that the people that do that, and I think that by the way, I think that impulse is universal and crosses borders of class and race and whatever. But then when I go to the places where this happens, it's often annoying yuppies sure. like me and my friends that are there. And the actual experience of loving the arts is often different than um what makes us love the arts in the first place. So what do we really care about? Is it the food or is it the container that it comes in? Critics at Large from The New Yorker. We'll be back in a minute. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfeg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Just to pick up on where we left off, I am haunted by this problem. For example, I love the visual arts. Mm-hmm. But then when I, anytime I hear about anything about the art market, something in me dies, you know? 100%. I, I, I love the movies. And then when I hear about the sort of cynicism of the streaming services that bring our movies to market and how many market and global and political forces either censor or skew the 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 art that I get I feel a queasiness right it's like pure art and the container or the sort of delivery vehicle for it 
I love food and I care about chefs and I care about the products that they make. And I also cannot stand the culture that has come around it and made it um, an experience for annoying people like we saw in the Frederick Wiseman movie. Um, so how do we balance those two things? And what does it mean about like why we actually want to go out and eat? Well, some of it is on the creators themselves to balance. I mean, we should say that one really cool thing that happens in the Frederick Wiseman movie is that they have a food truck. Like That's right. they have a food truck and they take it to the center of town and they have these there's a soup, there's a sandwich, there's a whole lunch that anyone can come and buy. And rather than think of this as a perversion of the great cuisine that can only be experienced in place, mm-hmm. It's a good democratization of that. It's the food can exist in different forms and can serve different purposes. So I think that's some of it. Um, You know, there is no dining without the eater. Is that profound or is that obvious? It's no. no, There's there's no. There's no. Well, you know, there's no. Um, there is a painting if no one is around to see it. Like there, there is a book if no one's around to read it. We talk endlessly about do you write for the reader? Who do you have in mind? Fine, but you can't keep cooking if no one's eating the food. So we are this integral part of the experience. Ha ha. And I right. think you know. I think one reason why I found the incursion of the diners to was because in the Wiseman movie, we've been in the kitchen, and so we've been observing the art-making and the craft. And I, of course, came to totally over-identify with these um, chefs who were doing things I absolutely cannot do. You know, yeah. when people who actually come in, who are my real avatars, actually come in to eat this food, it's like, don't ruin it. It's not for you. But, of course, it is for them. It's only um, for them. It's yeah. only for them. It's only for them. Um, yeah, like, we're just getting to this idea of fellow people and— Eating, you know, for instance, if I may just take this in a certain direction. Yes, please. My ideal eating experience. To me, there is one word that summons exactly what I want, and it is conviviality. Mm -hmm. If the restaurant is convivial, Mm -hmm. then I am utterly delighted, and it has to do with many things. It has to do with food. It definitely, for me, has to do with service. Just a general sense that my well-being is a matter of concern which can be communicated in many different ways and at many different levels, I need that. A soft <laughs> hand on the shoulder? I don't need The physical, different shoulder? Just, 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 just a sense of, I think I'm just a little bit over, maybe not fully, I may come around, I'm a little bit over to the excitement of being abused in advance. That does not get me going anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, much yeah. like an animal destined for slaughter, if, you, if it has adre- its adrenaline raise, the meat won't be as good. If I've had to <laughs> stress out, about the reservation and all these things in advance. The metaphor is kind of twist, like you, right? So your I don't want to go in with my cortisol levels elevated right. from having from the struggle. I don't need to feel this grand drama of struggle and triumph. I simply want to feel welcomed. I feel my eyes nearly filling with not quite filling with tears, but <laughs> <laughs> it's on the way. So what's your what's what is your perfect restaurant experience. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it just just to it when I, I when I was growing up, we never really went to restaurants. Mm-hmm. Like we never really ate out. But I I do think that I've come to think about going out as part of like being alive in the world and might might have to something to do with what you were saying, Alex, of the sort of conviviality, fellowship, and I love eating. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, that you know, helps. So, yeah, so, so the combination of, like, 
food, yeah. drink, and company. That's right. Is is uh, is just important to the ecology of life? Yeah. I I would say. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. For me, it's about I want a place that helps me feel closer to the people that I came in with. Mm-hmm. When I was very when I was young when I was maybe I don't know. 11 and 12 and 13, uh, I remember we used to live in uh, Washington Heights, and my mother and I would walk up the hill to Fort Washington and go to this Indian restaurant whose name I couldn't tell you. And we would just, like, hang out and talk. And I, you know, we I, we felt closer to one another when it was done. And it was about atmosphere. It was about the fact that we both loved the food. But um, it was also just about, like, deepening friendships. Recently, I went to a scene L.A. restaurant, and I was with um, – Three of my very close friends, people that I really enjoyed, you know, I was there like, and they give you crayons and I was there like drawing on the table and like, honestly, like a little bit more tipsy than I needed to be. I was going to get on a plane later that night and just enjoying my friends to death. And like the food was great. We're talking about food, but then also just like talking about writing and work and our lives. And I, I just like you just I just felt like I was in the bosom of of, of my friendships, you know. Yeah. And this, you know, this issue of like, you know, the crossroads of hype and conviviality, it it it, it brings into question what the art of the restaurant actually is because I, mm. I I tend to think in these perhaps like overly binary ways this sort of like duality between the food and then the restaurant, the food being the art, the restaurant being whatever, the hype vehicle. But there is an art of Hospitality. Absolutely. You know, and and this is perhaps the this is why maybe why it makes it harder for those of us who like, you know, love to apply textual analysis to works of art. It's like, well, yes, you could you can do a close reading of food, but you also there is another thing, perhaps a more abstract thing. It's like, well, how does something make you feel special or how does something make you feel loved by your friends or convivial convivial? There is a whole um, there is a, a parallel art. That I think on the far end turns into hype and something that we we don't like, you know, borders on, you know, PR and a sort of cheapening. But there is a real art of being in a place and feeling really good. Yeah. And, you know, that makes me think about how in the past few years we've seen all these stories come out about the abuse endured by people who work in restaurant kitchens. You know, the the shouting, the hierarchical culture, the egomaniacal chef leading the kitchen. Even I'm thinking about a show like The Bear, which really dealt with the trauma of working in some of these environments. And also restaurant kitchens were a major site and continue to be a major site of Me Too excavations. There's a lot of sexual abuse we've learned that goes on in restaurant kitchens. You know, so those stories are awful in their own right, of course. But for me, I think they do really transform the experience of being at a restaurant. You know, the ambiance of a restaurant, you go there, Vincent, it's like what you were saying, to feel close to people or just to shine and be shined on and to have the kind of experience that is elevated Uh, beyond what you can get in your own home. So to know that someone is abusing someone right behind the pass, for me, that does put a damper on the experience, um, unless you're a sadist, which, frankly, I am not. Yeah, it's like separating the art from the artist, right? It's like, how can you enjoy the, you know, rack of lamb, the succulent lamb, you know, rack of lamb, when you know that the chef has been 
screaming into the ear of uh, his underling. Yeah, you know? I just think rarely are they so connected as they are in the case of dining because mm-hmm. the, I mean, we have all kinds of ways to express this. We have the phrase cooking with love or cooked with love, you know, indicating that 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 the emotions that one has while making food will show through in the food itself. But even on a less metaphysical level than that, part of the art of the restaurant is to create this space for people to come and eat in. And so, you know, it's it's not just the finished product. It's also the entire atmosphere and the feeling of it. And if a totally different atmosphere is presiding behind the kitchen door, I do think that um, creates definitely a moral and an ethical quandary. It's a little bit like, you yes. know, are you in first class on the Titanic? Is below you men stripped down to their skivvies or thrusting coal into the machine just to make <laughs> the engines run while you, you know, just dine on porcelain plates? No, I don't I don't think that's the ideal restaurant experience no. in 2023. Yeah. We don't want that. No. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've talked about kind of two extremes, the sort of extreme art experience of Le Toigre nice. and the the um, perhaps disheartening example of the newly sort of TikTok-fueled resi culture. Um, is, there, is there an ideal somewhere in between those that we, could, that we could point to? So I just love a wonderful neighborhood restaurant. And I think the time has come to reveal to the listener that we three went to just such a restaurant Last night. Last night. Together. Just last night. Just last night. <laughs> yes, we socialize outside of this little room. And <laughs> I would have gladly made the reservation on Resi, but the place where we went does not do Resi. And so I called and spoke to a person, and that was a great experience. But more relevantly, I thought we had a great time. We had a great time. The food was good, not overly fancy. Um, the room was pleasantly sunken. The the booth, you know, soft and inviting. I sat down and I said, um, nothing bad can happen here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, the ultimate product, the ultimate art object that comes out of this. We got a picture at the end. We did get a picture <laughs> at the end. And you asked your nice server to take a picture of your, you and your friends. It was great. It was totally delicious. It was great. You had a curry in like any other. Mm-hmm. That's what it was called on the menu. That's right. So much curry. Speaking of which, guys, I have good news. Mm. We can go to Les Trois Gros this Friday. There are there are reservations <laughs> available. Let's get on are a plane. Are, okay. <laughs> So it only t- yeah, it'll cost us the, the 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 cost of a transatlantic flight. Mm. Do you think we can expense those? Uh, sure. We'll f- find, out, find out. Find out next time. Find Critics out alert. next week. <laughs> this has been Critics at Large. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby. Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music. We had engineering help today from Jake Loomis, and this episode was mixed by Mike Kutchman. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a rating on Spotify and maybe even check us out there next time. Thanks, and see you soon.
The run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink lover. room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.